So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on their way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code PREPARED22. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. I think people think of China and they're like city, high tech, everyone's tracked. They've really contained this like perfect system, right? But then on the ground, it's still so unevenly developed. But somehow that has changed to the outside world. Xiao Wei Wang, her recent book, Blockchain Chicken Farm, a meditation on the impact of tech in rural China. This book, aside from touting the best title of a book we featured on China Talk, has the sort of really deep reporting you rarely see in English on small town China. Xiao Wei, welcome to China Talk. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. Let's open with your first scene. How did you find yourself brushing your teeth surrounded by pin-sized black worms sleeping in a room freezing with just a small plastic space heater defeatedly wheezing lukewarm air to keep you warm? Yeah, I did not expect to end up there for the night. I had gotten stuck there, essentially. When I was doing research for this trip, a lot of the time was spent traveling by bus. And so it was completely different. When you travel around urban China, things are really on time. For the most part, you can expect the train to show up, all these things. You're going to get to point B. You can always call a cab or DD if you need it. But when I was doing research in rural China, I would always be like, I heard there's this bus that shows up to this village. Can I get there? And just, you know, everyone would have five different opinions of when this mysterious bus would show up. So yeah, I got stuck in the village. There were only two buses a day and it was not fun. My hosts were really gracious. They were like, you're American. We get it. You want the most comfortable surroundings. We'll give you the biggest guest house in the village. I'm like, I don't need a whole house. So that's how I ended up in these freezing cold (laughs) conditions. Uh, you know, the the outhouse is like the nicest one that they had in the village, really. But I survived and I learned a lot about myself, including <laughs> that I will find any opportunity to obsess about emails and revisit awkward interactions, even when I'm like by myself <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. So this leads into my first question, Xiaowei, which was, what was the reaction of interviewees? I mean, you have dyed pink hair, but even without that, being an American in these very small places is a weird sort of interstitial place to be, even as a Chinese American. How did they respond to you and the idea that rural China was something that an American would be interesting doing a book project about? Yeah. So this is also your question speaks to the importance, I think, of like how we write about people and social theory. Doing research, I had to do my due diligence and read these policy papers, read these things that are really like, we did this massive study really top down. But then being on the ground, actually talking to folks, they're very clear what's going on in the world, despite our maybe assumptions about these quote unquote backwater places. So it was a mix of surprise. I also have what I call going into drag almost like I, (laughs) uh, you know, my hair is not dyed. I have an outfit that I wear. It's like the same one outfit. Can your your Chinese pass as native or? Yeah. So a lot of people were just like, you're Chinese. And then I'd be like, no, I'm actually visiting from America. And some people freaked out. They were like, there's no way you're American. (laughs) Like they literally lost it. And so sometimes folks, especially county officials, as you can imagine, they felt a real need to impress me being like, oh, you're from America, you're from San Francisco, California, ball places really would start to put on a show. Other people would just be like, you're an idiot. Like, why did you come here all the way from America to see us? We're not doing anything special. You could have just like asked the local party secretary to give you one or two poll quotes and that's it. You know, you didn't even have to come here. Yeah. And 
I think that was also really fascinating too, because of course, and I'm sure you've experienced this traveling throughout China, there's also this weird sense of shame that's still present mm. of a lot of villagers were kind of like, I'm so sorry that we don't really have anything to show you. We're not that modern. And I'm like, you're using a cell phone to like do all these pretty <laughs> incredible things. We're pretty far from a major city. And they're just like, I don't understand why you think this is special. But yeah, definitely a sense of, them being apologetic that they weren't more high tech. Yeah, we'll get it. We'll get into this later, but you can totally read in your book when a handful of these folks, like the pearl farmer, are like, "Yeah, man, we're just we're doing the same thing you guys do not on Sand Hill Road," which which I which I really liked. So your family does come into this a little bit. So I think it's it's sort of fair game to ask what their response was when you chose this as a book topic. I think it was really influenced by experiences of growing up Chinese American and my family. Right, I talk about my uncle who was working in the import export business. If this was one of those China books where it's about like the plucky person who has nothing and then makes it to the top, that's really my uncle. He taught himself English, moved from Tianjin to Guangzhou, and became part of this import-export business. And now he lives in this super fancy apartment complex. <laughs> When he got there in the '80s, he was like, "Yeah, people in Guangzhou still slept outside in the summer because it was so hot and there wasn't AC and all these things." So I think it offered this really big insight, both in terms of how China has developed, but then also how when we talk about these things, right? It's really hard to see beyond our own ideologies of nationalism, of what we think our country should be doing, or the ideals that our country aspires to. And so it is nice to have that distance, but also that proximity on a really personal level. And just even now, when we talk about stuff that's going on in the U.S., there's a lot of American exceptionalism,、sure. and I think having family steeped in this kind of Chinese exceptionalism is a nice way to relate to it, but also not be judgmental about it. That's so well put. I don't have a follow up or a transition.、Um, <laughs> blockchain chicken. What is it, and is it good? So the eggs are good. I actually didn't get to the chicken meat. Also, the other thing is, how do I put it? I actually haven't talked about this before. So the chickens get slaughtered, and I think most people think chickens slaughtered immediately to your doorstep. There's a lot of processing that happens. And it ends up not being very appetizing to be like I've eaten this chicken that's been dead for kind of a long time, right? And I I live in California.、Yeah. I'm spoiled. Like, <laughs> you know, you can get fresh chickens. So the blockchain chicken farm was this guy, Farmer Jiang, and he had been raising free range chickens for a pretty long time. No one trusted that they were actually free-range chickens because of the kind of incessant food safety issues in China and the increasingly low level of societal trust given the rapid economic development. And so he was like, "How am I going to actually sell these free-range chickens for a price that's going to cover all the costs that I put into them?" An influx of local county officials really tuned in to ways of increasing economic development in the village. One of them, through their networks, had access to Shanghai Liamokoji, so Shanghai Technology Company, and this tech company was doing blockchain provenance projects to use blockchain across the supply chain, and it was this. Perfect match, right? Like you know, we can do this novel、mm -hmm. blockchain chicken project. The chickens have a little chicken Fitbit. It's like a little wristband, has a QR code, pedometer, all these things.、Um, Are there names? <laughs> there is no names. There's six thousand of them. I wish there were names, like just randomly generated. There's pictures, and I later realized it was a generic picture that they were using. It's just kind of a mess, right? A hot mess. I mean, I feel like there are a lot of extensions. Like you can like Fitbit、um, data to like get their personality if they're not active, and you put them on grade them on scales, and then you get fun active name if they're 
hopping around all the time or like a lazy name if they just like to sit i mean exactly right if i were selling those chickens you could take a personality quiz of which chicken you should eat (laughs) you know there's there's endless potential marketing potential yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like you balance out your 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 chi or whatever. <laughs> if like you're feeling low, then you kind of get like one of the excited ones. If you're like, you know, you're too you're too busy that day, you need like a relaxing. Chicken. Oh my god! I mean, wow, so we should do. start a competing blockchain chicken. <laughs> the China Chalk Chicken Farm. Come on, exactly. Twenty twenty. What this else are we gonna our do? Livelihood. Um, I mean, they sold all the chickens. People bought them off of JD.com and the bracelet stays with the chicken through slaughter. And so once it gets to your door, vacuum sealed, you can scan the QR code. It was weird when I asked the county officials and also the farmer, what do you guys think of blockchain? All of them were like, what is blockchain? And things got real awkward. I was trying to give them some face. You know, I wasn't making fun of them. I honestly wanted to know. Every once in a while, you get a county official hipping with it. Um, but oftentimes, you have these entrepreneurs who are running so far the local um, of the local government that at first, they sort of are very skeptical and, you know, want to shut their new businesses, but eventually sort of end up paying the credit yep. as their own. Yeah, I, I think my favorite time was visiting the Taobao village. And the county official in that situation just walks into the Taobao entrepreneur's house and is like, what is going on? This is a fire hazard. You're selling things on the computer? Like it's that scene from Zoolander where you're like, the files are in the computer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's go. Let's go there then. What was going down in Guizhou's little Shangi Ping? Well, for first off, how did you get there? So I love to stay with my aunt and uncle because they're Nouveau Reach <laughs> and they live in Guangzhou and Guangzhou started to have the high-speed rail into Guizhou and I started to look along the map and I was like, okay, cool. I went to a couple of places because it also makes stops in Guilin, which I did not enjoy. But going further down... Um, I think I have to defend Guilin's honor for a second as this is the first place I spent. Wait, this is the really? first place I spent time in in China. And I think it's a little skewed maybe because I went from you know, zero characters to a thousand there and was in full-time language school. And it was all my firsts of like, oh, I get to play basketball in Chinese. Oh, I get to order my first Jinbing. And like, people understand when I want a extra banana on it or whatever. And like, the weather's nice. They have rock climbing. I don't know. There's a lot to be said for that as like a China starter town, I think, Mm. but. It's true. It's true. Anyways, I, I understand looking back if it does leave a little bit to be desired as like a place to spend a lot of even but I think as it's like a four day place on your, you know, two week China itinerary. I think it's pretty I mean they have mountains in the middle of the city. It's just like that's cool. It's true. It's true. I think I'm more of like a Guiyang hype okay. person. <laughs> so maybe I'm like too too much in the Guiyang camp to see the beauty yeah. of Guiyang. I mean, I don't like the I don't like the the the, the Mifen. I think Mifen is just a not a good product. But anyways, um we were talking about uh what were we talking about? We were talking about uh um, Oh, the high speed rail. Okay, so you're literally looking on the map and you're like, where is some small town I can just hang out for a while or did you search like small town Taobao Village and then go from there? Oh, I just searched on WeChat for various combinations of like the town names. And of course, someone had written some kind of article about like, visit this place. So I ended up in Zhaoxing, which is this bigger town. Um, It's a pretty developed tourist village. And when I got there, the people at the place that I was staying at, extremely, extremely chill dude from Sichuan, who he was like, I moved here because I love the mountains so much to be this like innkeeper. He was like, oh, yeah, this town has gotten too developed. You should check out Shangri Ping. I'll draw you this map. I was like, how do I get there? He gives me this hand-drawn map. And I was like, okay. That's, that's an adventure. Let's do it. That's awesome. Yeah. So it was beautiful. So are these in your summers during your PhD program or when is this happening? Like of your, in your like life arc? Oh, summers and winters. Okay. That's the beauty of academia is you get a t- lot of time <laughs> off and no one cares if you like show up back on time to school. <laughs> really? 
I got to Shandi Ping and the first time I visited, no paved road. Someone was getting married and so they were slaughtering this pig. It was very nice. chaotic. And it was this combination of they have the schoolhouse, which is built out of wood, and then all these signs for e-commerce and all these couriers coming in. So at the time when I talked to the only both combo restaurant innkeeper person in that really small village, he's telling me about how his town is going to develop. It's really exciting. They're going to get a wastewater system. And yeah. he's he has a lot of optimism. They tried to develop e-commerce in their village, but at the time it was basically impossible because how are you going to get things out of there? You're going to like walk them down the mountain path for two hours. So that was a kind of failed experiment and speaks to how I think a lot of the times we think about these projects, especially when it's in the realm of internet and digital as not material, right? Like, oh, it's digital. It can happen. It's like magic. But actually, it yeah. still relies on a lot of this basic infrastructure like roads. It's hard to put cell phone towers in super mountainous places. You got to get the material up there. It takes time. Yeah. I mean, it's a development story, and it's also a bit of a mindset thing, which you pointed to. Like, they made this really tasty chili paste, and you were like, can I buy some? And he's like, I don't know, I guess. And then he finds a drawer and puts it into you. You're like, how much should I pay? And he says, oh, I don't know, like yeah. five kwai or something. But it's just funny because, like, these sorts of stories you read in like, the Peter Hessler or even, like, the book's before where you have Westerners talking about China circa 70s and 80s. But to hear the story of, I don't know, you were there 2015, 2016, it's like, I think a lot of people don't recognize the fact that there are still hundreds of millions of people who live on this wavelength, not on the Yixian Changshir, but even the little towns that have a lot more of the sort of accoutrements of Western capitalism than you would necessarily expect. Yeah, that's such a great point. Do you ever feel like China has just done a really horrible PR job? <laughs> like, what I mean by that is, yes, both the US and China are these imperialist authoritarian regimes. I mean, I don't know how you feel about the US. That's how I feel about it quite often. <laughs> Whatever. We, we'll have that conversation another time. But. Um, <laughs> but, you know, now I think people think of China and they're like city, high tech, everyone's tracked. They've really contained this like perfect system, right? But then on the ground, it's still so unevenly developed. But somehow that has changed to the outside world. It's also really crazy. Yeah. And I'm sure this has happened to you before. But you talk to like folks in Chinese cities, where they say stuff like, Oh, but China's still a developing country. Look at the countryside. Yeah. And you're just like, I think we have very different definitions of developing country. But then a lot of folks, even friends, like who are sociology majors in China, like big universities, they'll point to the US countryside and they're like, Look at your industrial agriculture. Look at your machine, like precision GPS tractors and machines. You don't really have farmers. This is what we think a developed country looks like. It's it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, China, it doesn't fit into the categories because it has a billion people and contains <laughs> multitudes, right? Yeah. So I think it's totally reasonable. It is and isn't a developing country. I, I think those PKU sociology majors are right. I mean, our farmers aren't poor agriculture has industrialized and there are far fewer of them and yep. they can do a lot more than the, the side of the mountain that requires an extraordinary amount of human labor to process. Uh, and, you know, coming back to your other points, Yahweh, about the sort of marketing job, like Hobe Pangza, right? <laughs> the guy, how do you explain him? He's like a country bumpkin who is very friendly and drinks a lot and makes these videos of him chugging. He has this special technique where he turns the beer upside down in a jar and makes it into like a whirlpool and then drinks it really, really faster than you've ever seen anyone drink a beer. That sort of stuff, as well as the kind of humanizing details that you have in your book of people who aren't major city government officials or titans of industry, make China approachable and give it 
some personality and show that it has the multitudes, which anyone who's spent more than two weeks there understands. And the fact that that is just not really allowed to be part of the narrative. I mean, Hobe Pangza is like the obvious one. He was banned from Kwaisho, right? My former employer, because he was not uh, enough. Like, it's not cool to be binge drinking, which is true. But at the same time, I think it just goes to show that only certain types of stories are allowed to be told. And I think one of the most endearing things about America is that we on occasion try to grapple with the things that are wrong about this and about us in an ugly and very public way and that is not something that the ccp does yeah right so they most certainly are not going to do it when trying to project the image they want of, of china you know with like a dagua taidu and like you know a fuqiang guojia or whatever exactly so yeah no it's a missed opportunity and it's not going to change <laughs> yeah yeah i remember there's this interview with ken Liu that logic magazine did that was <laughs> where ken was just like china's not doesn't get the soft power thing like the u.s is like here's you know the embassies here's money for a literary fest or for you to write something cool just do whatever you want with it and china's just like no actually we're banning rap music all these fun things like no yeah <laughs> yeah dylan levy king wrote this piece kind of reflecting on what chinese literature makes it into the west and the things that get published and get attention are the moyens of the world you're the wuhan diary basically stuff that's like really kind of critical of the government and sort of like dissident or dissident adjacent literature where in fact you know there is an enormous you know there's a lot of chinese people writing a lot of incredible contemporary literature but americans like to see social critique and if you're going to shut off any kind of venue for that, like what happened with the fan fiction websites, then you're sort of left with something that feels really anodyne to Western readers. And it's the sort of thing where you end up only being left with the really hardcore critical of China government type stuff or like reflecting back on the cultural revolution, even though, um, you know, it's important, but it's also those writers are now in their 70s at this point. So again, my thinking on that is like, if they just funded translations of interesting writers but they won't do that because then it's sort of like as you said going down this american model of kind of letting people do whatever they want as long as it's sort of related to america yeah you know i've been thinking about it a lot because especially with this book coming out it's really like kind of human stories and then people are like do you even write about china policy stuff and i'm like i wrote this nation piece like i don't know you can yeah. read it or people are often like oh you humanized it so you must be pro like ccp tool <laughs> like you're getting paid yeah. by someone and actually with all the stuff being in English that's highly critical of the government, I think that's great and it needs to be said and it's like being shut down and censored in China. At the same time, what infuriates me is not that, oh, there's not enough, you know, humanistic stories, but what infuriates me is that oftentimes in American policy circles, that's not taken one step further, right? Like, okay, people are writing yeah. against the government, but also why? Like, what's the context? What does it say to you about this longer history of how the U.S. has been perceived and what the U.S. has been doing? Um is it okay to mention Xinjiang? Yeah, 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 yeah. Go crazy. You know, oftentimes it's like, Xiaowei, you write about China and you never talk about Xinjiang. And I'm like, well, one, to actually honor everything that's going on, I'm not a Xinjiang scholar. I'm going to let someone who is an expert talk about this. But two, people will just be like, yeah, Xinjiang genocide, police state. And then they're also in the U.S. just totally fine with a police state here. You can't hold these things and just be okay with, yeah. So I don't know. Well, I'm not entirely endorsing the moral equivalence <laughs> there, but I will say the critique of humanizing is just such a weird one because there are humans who are doing all of these policies. And if you want to understand them and want to figure out how to change them, you have to think about what motivates them and what their incentive structures are. And China is policy documents for sure, but China is also human beings who implement those policies and deal in their little bureaucracies and have bosses that they have to respond to and live in this broader ecosystem, I guess. Totally. So to kind of say China's evil, so we're going to stop engaging with it 
is just a weird one, even if you are a super hardline anti-CCP person, yeah. what you would want to do is actually understand what the dynamics are and what the fissures are in, in Chinese society, not from a sort of dreaming that the regime's going to fall next week because Matt Pottinger gives a speech in Chinese, <laughs> but, you know, actually figuring out what's really going on and what are the potential futures that the world could hold for this season. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. You know, it felt also very palpable to me. People often say it in the abstract, you know, we rely so much on China for our material goods and supply chain and things like that. So let's go directly to that. You have this incredible story of this like semi-literate guy up from his bootstraps, ending up feeding the whole village on Halloween costumes. Uh, so please walk us through that story. So Tapa Villages have been written about a fair amount in recent journalism. It's always like, I went to this Taobao village and they're getting rich kind of conclusion. Yeah, presumably because they're not doing the, the search method you are of just like looking on the map, but instead asking, you know, Ali PR to pick them for them. Right? Yeah. Um, but anyway. Yeah. So the Taobao village that I went to, I went to a few. The one that I talk about a lot in the book is in Shandong and the first entrepreneur there. It undergoes the tension that we're describing of he's this first entrepreneur. He brought this know-how from working in the city back into his hometown when he arrived. And he knew that there was this thing called costume manufacturing. There's films, stage plays, things like that. And you need this one-time wear costume. <laughs> and he's like, I can just do this at home and sell it to people. And he starts this business, sells these costumes on Taobao and really starts to get big. The county officials at first are just like, what is he doing? This is not good. We don't understand. But they eventually see it as a form for the village to economically develop. And they start supporting this in a pretty big way by not taxing them, putting in a lot of nice infrastructure like super fast internet. The Taobao village, it's just, it's kind of, I mean, it's miserable, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be mm -hmm. clear, poverty is also miserable, but it is a bit of a dystopia for sure. Yeah. And I think, too, in counter to some of the other places that I do mention in the book, where there is this sense of, I want to say, agency or ownership of villagers guiding how things were going with a lot of the Taobao sellers that I talked to in this village. So, you know, of course, Ren Qingsheng starts his Taobao business making costumes. You know, the neighbor starts to make shoes, the embroidery guy. It really becomes this whole ecosystem. A lot of the other sellers I talked to, but this one person specifically, he's just like, this is all a scam. <laughs> it's a scam. I sell these things on Taobao. There's more and more sellers every day. Alibaba Rural Development Institute is talking about how this is so great. Alibaba is excited about it. So they encourage more sellers. You know, the folks have to push their prices down. They can only cut corners so much. On top of that, you're competing with these other sellers. You have to buy ads to push your listing to the top. It's really just this race to the bottom. And there was really this sense, I think, from a lot of the sellers where there wasn't that sense of sustainability. It was really like, we're well aware of what's going on. We're going to get rich yeah. while we can. Which, again, is better. I mean, is, I think, a better place to be in than on the mountain, like, subsistence farming. Yes, I I would agree with you. I also think that there's probably a middle ground <laughs> that is due to a lack of imagination <laughs> in which it's not like you can either subsistence farm or you can sell cheap shoes yeah, on yeah. Taobao, right? Can you tell the Halloween anecdote? I just think that's I just think that's so great. Oh god, so part of this book's research just involved like people would walk into the room and look at my computer during research and be like, why are you just always online shopping? <laughs> like I'm on Alibaba, I'm on Taobao. So I meet, uh, you know, Ren Qingsheng, they make snow white costumes and I'm just browsing and browsing on Amazon, all these things. And it turns out these Taobao villages are feeding into this bigger network of international sellers because Amazon made it easier for international sellers to post directly yep. on Amazon. And I see these Snow White costumes on Amazon. And I'm sure someone out there listening to this has bought a knockoff Halloween costume for their kid before, right? Like Disney's expensive. Having yep. kids is expensive. 
and it's this realization that like Halloween trick-or-treaters in America are changing this farming village are changing this ecosystem of this village, right? They're planting fruit trees with their new money. They're growing chili peppers instead of wheat because it's a cash crop. Just the fact that all these things are materially connected is just truly mind-boggling. absolutely important. Back in Beijing, Smart Air, a science-based social enterprise which produces affordable air filters, was a lifesaver keeping my lungs safe in the dog days of 300 AQI after 300 AQI day. Back when I moved to New York, I figured I didn't have to worry about air quality anymore. But to my dismay, my phone kept getting alerts about 100 plus AQI days. At first, I was a little hesitant because some of Smart Air's old models aren't the sleekest, but they just launched this new Square air purifier, which is just as effective and quiet as the old standbys, but much more stylish. It sells for $200, but for a limited time, you can use the code CHINATALK to get 5% off. They have offices across Asia, including China and India. They also ship worldwide. I just got one sent to the US and it is both prettier and more effective than the wire cutters recommended air filter, which is sold out on Amazon anyways. Perfect gift for your family to keep their lungs healthy. Plus, the smarter guys have shown that purifiers can also filter out COVID-19, which is obviously a big plus. Check them out at smartairfilter.com and use the code CHINATALK for a discount. Let's go back to Guiyang, this urban village, and this very, you know, lovely policeman who you ended up spending a few afternoons with, it seems like. This is the great thing about being a student, is that everyone will try and help you with your school project. I mean, that's the weird thing about doing research in China versus the U.S., is like, I think in China, people are like, oh, you're a PhD student, that still means something. You must be smart. I want to help you. Um, so I told the police officer, I'm doing this like school act. And- did you, did you like, did you send a message to their like gong gong hao or like how, what, what's the first contact here with these folks? I asked a friend and she had been part of the student group who had talked to them before. One summer, the police station had a bunch of sociology students oh, okay. do some like weird survey, like to knock on every single door to collect data. <laughs> um, and it was through those channels, like academic, really. Gotcha. So I got to meet up with this police officer and he was to show me their real population platform. And it was this new platform that was unveiled, made by this super tiny tech company. And the idea of the platform is that it would plug into eventually some kind of bigger, bigger national surveillance. On the ground, it was really starting off very small. It was looking at the urban villages of migrants in Guiyang, pretty much only over the past 10 years or so, given Guiyang's geography, location, the whole province in general, it's really become at the forefront of economic development. And you have that ever so common phenomenon of countryside folks going to the city for work. And the police officer, he he was strangely, uh, I don't want to say pragmatic, but just very matter of fact about what they could and couldn't do with this real population system. It's really to register everyone living inside a house. And in these urban villages, you have night laborers, day laborers, you have like 10 people sharing one room with a bunch of bunk beds, right? And it's to keep track of people who might do these crimes. And so he gives me this statistic about how most of the crimes happen in urban villages. The perpetrators and victims are mostly migrants. And so I think it really speaks to the shape of, I mean, I know we might differ on this because of how leftist I am, but I think it speaks to the shape of how policing is used as a tool in this bigger system of capitalism, right? Sure. Um, Well, a few interesting things that sort of struck out to me in that story is, first off, the whole idea of putting numbers behind crime. This is something that started in New York City with Rudy Giuliani and CompuStat, right? And is not a particularly controversial... I mean, there are aspects of it that are controversial, but understanding the patterns of crime and where it happens and when it happens is a pretty 
defensible idea for governance, right? And you can take it in a lot of directions. But I think this comes back to when you see all this sort of alarmism about Chinese social credit score or whatever. And yeah, it can certainly be extended into some really awful places. But there's also a part of all of these stories where it's just like, here's a country that has like a lot of dysfunctional governance things about it and is enormous and really hard to rule. And there are bureaucrats who are trying to do their job every day. My favorite part about this was the policeman who you're talking to, who's this younger guy, really trying to get the older folks in the office to like use a computer and log whatever they're doing. And they're just like, no, this is a waste of time. I don't want to do this. So there are a lot of things that are sort of very relatable just from anyone who's followed any digitization debates in other countries where you sort of have an old guard that's not particularly interested in any sort of bureaucratic reform. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the constant tensions, right? You you hear these top level documents like this thing we've implemented will solve all of crime. And on one hand, people are like scary, authoritarian. On other people are like, it's going to make us a lot more safe. But either way, on the ground, the implementation is totally messy. When I visit the police officer, he's like, well, a lot of the landlords are illiterate. (laughs) They don't even know how to use WeChat to register people onto this platform. And you're asking questions like, so like this whole minority report thing you guys are trying to build. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, I can't even get the databases to reconcile themselves. Like, Oh yeah. I love it. I love it. There's like, there are a lot of like, you know, Mr. Wong's or whatever that we have to reconcile. Exactly. It's an actual mess on the ground. But that's also what's scary. Both scary and comforting, right? It's a mess. And also there's so much room for a mistake, like that movie Brazil, where the fly falls in. And next thing you know, they arrest the wrong person. So you write that if the military science lab was seen as the birthplace of 20th century nuclear annihilation, the 21st century's death by ecological destruction and unfettered capitalism is symbolized by a glass cube conference room with a whiteboard. I want you to talk about your experience with Meg V and the tension where you write that on the one hand, this place didn't just remind me of Silicon Valley. It was Silicon Valley. But at the same time, you know, it being used as part of a Xinjiang surveillance state. I think a huge part of this, one, when I think about so much of looking historically, it's the things that have happened since the Cold War, just geopolitics in general. It's like been so much shaped by that. I talk about this often with folks, but a lot of those top policymakers, they are of that generation where they grew up in the Cold War and they're like, I remember this and it shapes what I do, sadly. Now, I think there's this new iteration of it that's actually more hidden and a little bit scarier. And the reason why I say hidden is because if you dig down deep into the networks of venture capitalists, of where those financial flows are coming and going, right? The money that funds a lot of these Chinese tech companies that are doing surveillance, it's not just like Chinese government giving them contracts. It's also a network of international investors everywhere from like SoftBank to, you know, all these other places, Fidelity. (laughs) And it's pretty entangled the same way that it is in Silicon Valley. I think there's also, on one hand, the viewing of power as like, the government says to do something and people do it. But that's not usually how it happens, right? It's not this linear process. If it was so linear, the world would be a lot more explainable and a lot less messy. There's the fact that there's a work culture created around this, right, of complicity. Let's do the quote. So you're talking to the spokesman at MegV, basically trying to preemptively defend against the criticism, which has convinced the U.S. government, which has put it on all these sanctions lists and what have you, that it's complicit, where they say, MegV doesn't store any data, it just makes the algorithm. It is innocent, she says. What the governments and companies do is up to them. The engineers just show up every day and do their job. That's exactly the work culture that's created by this kind of global VC tech neoliberalism vibe. And I felt it too when I was working in tech. Well, first, the way that engineering works is that all these little things, they're parceled off. It's really hard to get a sense of what that final product is because you're really busy on this small piece. As an engineer, that's not really it's not set up where you really think about that or that's part of your job. It's the salespeople (laughs) 
who are cutting those contracts. And it's complicated for a lot of people, right? They want to do a good job. They studied really hard in computer science and they want to feel valuable as part of a company. So it's hard to see all the things really play out in this big picture way when you're doing the day-to-day. And I think that's always going to be the line of companies. We see it with Palantir in the U.S. It's like Palantir, they do a lot of things. They also help health services build these better tools for doctors and surgeons, but they're also responsible for patrolling the U.S. border. It's always going to be like, well, we're just a government contractor. We're just making a small piece of it, right? We're not making the cameras. We're making the software. And that is the sad state of corporations. I mean, the thing you point out, which really struck me when I was working in the Chinese tech universe, is just how similar this sort of engineering ethos down to the clothes, down to the, the attitudes people take to their jobs at these Chinese firms and the Western ones. I think we've had the bubblings up of engineer consciousness in the U.S. in the past few years. And you've seen walkouts with regards to Me Too and protests around Maven and what have you. And without putting a value judgment on that sort of thing, I think it's very fair to say that that has not happened at all in the Chinese context. You want to meditate on why or any comments on that observation? So I'm trying to phrase this in a way where I don't put anyone at risk. Yeah. Um, If one were to talk to a lot of tech workers in China, they're pretty educated, right? A lot of them have gone to school abroad, all these things. They have access to reading outside news. One could assume that they are pretty clear on what's going on and feel opposed to it, right? I think that the difference is is like the level of consequence. This is what we fight so hard to preserve in the U.S. is that there is still possibility to speak out. And sure, you get fired from your job at Google, but also you're not going to be arrested and put into a political concentration camp. And and you got 50,000 more Twitter followers, which you can then leverage into more position at your next job, who's going to want to hire you to sort of make a point to draw in more engineers who are down with what you're saying. It's completely true. You would not last a day if you did anything like this at a Chinese firm. Probably, you know, maybe go to jail, most certainly lose your job, most certainly become unhirable. I've had the same experience of having like long lunchtime conversations about Marxism and how how we're all just exploited tools of the capitalist class, even with very well-paid engineers who are living the, you know, Tsinghua CS dream, right? But you're right. It's a function of the broader society and the sort of degrees of freedom that people enjoy in the US and and don't in... uh... Yeah. And I think... It'll be interesting to see how it develops. I mean, I try not to be too despondent, but it's hard not to be just the continuous decline. Let's go to the Pearl Farmers a little bit, because uh, I just think they're so fun. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Pearl Parties. So right after Trump... Do you have a, do you have a necklace? Um, they gave me a bag of pearls, but I gave it to my aunt. <laughs> oh, okay, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, After 2016, I was kind of depressed in the US. And so I uh, just looking on Facebook Live videos, there's like a, you know, public feed. And a coworker had told my partner about these things called Pearl Parties that were happening on Facebook Live. And so I started watching these pearl parties, just cruising on Facebook. And I became really fascinated because it's this phenomenon where some person, most of the time in red state America, is opening this tiny oyster and they're like, oh, Cindy, you got this one pearl. Surprise. It represents love, friendship, and happiness. It's green. You pay 10 bucks and eventually you get this pearl made into very cheap jewelry sent to your doorstep. Digging deeper into it, it was not only a multi-level marketing scheme that was pretty rampant throughout the U.S. And I, through Chinese blogs, after some research, found out that those pearls in those oysters, those oysters are actually dead and soaked in formaldehyde. They're this special kind of thing called wish oysters, where you have this giant sandiao bang, this triangle muscle. And it has like 50 pearls. They, at the pearl farm, take out one pearl and put it into a smaller oyster. 
soak it in formaldehyde, <laughs> ship these dead mollusks to the U.S. for these multi-level marketing parties on Facebook Live in Georgia. The thing I don't want you to miss is like, naturally they open when they die. So the formaldehyde is to reverse the muscle spasm or whatever, so they stay closed. Yeah, like having all these stay closed and stay preserved. All of it makes sense because as I continue to watch these Facebook Live parties, the hostesses are like, oh, it smells so weird. It smells so gross. I'm like, yeah, it's formaldehyde. So at that point, I decide that I have to visit a pearl farm. I have to actually talk to someone who's selling these wish oysters because they come either in cans or vacuum sealed. And I get to visit one. It was pretty surreal. I contacted a bunch of people on Alibaba and eventually one of them, the one who's extra welcoming and excited about my visit is this young guy who really sees himself as this hustler and he's like disrupting the pearl business in Zhejiang. And it was weird. It was kind of like a strange mirror too, because he and his two friends, they're all 20 somethings and they're aspiring to this startup hustle life. They've got the shoddy mid-century modern furniture, the all white yeah. office. And yeah, it's just bizarre how these things travel. I just want to shout out another part of this book, which I thought was very clever, where for a handful of chapter breaks, you do these essay slash recipes, one of them called how to feed an AI. So what is how to feed an AI a recipe for and why? How to feed an AI is a recipe for a porridge. And it's really a speculative recipe in which you know, there's always this talk in AI, neural net machine learning circles of like, oh, if we make hardware faster, all these things, but when are we going to get to this real artificial generalizable intelligence? And I kind of speculate that the missing piece is this kind of Chinese Western medicine view of the body where you need the rest of the organs to also form the sense of being and consciousness. And so it's this computer organ hybrid that comes together and creates this new kind of AI. And since it doesn't have an external body of skin and all those things, you need this special porridge to nourish it. How about how to eat yourself? How to eat yourself was inspired actually by a Microsoft research paper about this new form of data storage that people are looking into because quite honestly, cloud computing running running out of space, right? Like a lot of environmental consequences of that. And these scientists had come up with this way of storing data inside DNA. And so this speculation in this recipe is that we store it inside the DNA of soybeans. And when you want to destroy the data, you can turn it into soy milk and basically eat yourself, eat your own data all your old selfies to your exes, all those things to get rid of it. And we're going to do the last one because this is just too much fun. How to eat the world. That one was totally influenced by being in Silicon Valley where people are like, software is eating the world. We're going to take over Mars, all these things. It's, it's our future. And imagining this future in which it does take over and we continue on this kind of dystopic capitalist empire building and we eventually grow food on the moon to satisfy the market. So it's a recipe actually for moon cakes, moon for corn that's grown on the moon and it turns into this special powder that you can put inside moon cakes. You can actually make it and they come out really beautiful because they're ice skin ones, kind of transparent. Mm. So you could use r regular cornmeal instead of moon-grown one if you want. Xiaowei, I just looked up your book on Doban, which sadly has no reviews, but I really think it deserves a Chinese translation. I feel like it would be really interesting to have mainlanders sort of grapple with what you're grappling with. And I imagine you probably only need to change like maybe 5% of it to have it past muster. Have you thought about that or any sort of plans on that? I would love to. I would love to. It's, it's the churn of uh, the publishing industry, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if anyone out there wants to translate it, <laughs> publish it in China, I'm open. Fingers crossed. 
Xiaowai Wang, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. I'm not going to do it.